This is The Guardian. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Hello, I'm Grace Dent. I'm back and I've been busy. My new book, Comfort Eating, which is based on our award-winning podcast, is out now. You can get hold of it at guardianbookshop.com. And from Tuesday, the podcast is returning for its next season with an exciting lineup including Shirley Ballas, Bridget Christie, Jamie Demetrio, and many more. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to join me on Book Tour, I'll be in London on the 9th of October and in Manchester on the 11th talking about my go-to comfort foods and a lot more. Get your tickets today from membership.theguardian.com forward slash events. I can't wait to see you there. Over the next year or so, guests will be joining me on this podcast to analyse the stakes of the 2024 presidential election in the United States. We'll hear from supporters of the Democrats and Republicans who see it as imperative to the future of democracy that their chosen candidate wins the White House. But there are many observers outside the United States waiting just as intently on next year's results in America. No one more so than Volodymyr Zelensky and the people of Ukraine. Please hear me. Let unity decide everything openly. President Zelensky will have appreciated watching Joe Biden at the podium of the UN General Assembly in New York on Tuesday, where he said that the US will continue to stand with Ukraine as it defends its sovereignty following the Russian invasion. Because we know our future is bound to yours. Let me repeat that again. We know our future is bound to yours. Donald Trump, on the other hand, well, he got a nice stroke to the ego from the Kremlin. President Putin said, quote, we surely hear that Mr. Trump says he will resolve all burning issues within several days, including the Ukrainian crisis. We cannot help but feel happy about it. What do well, you make of I, that? Do you welcome well, his support? I like that he said that because that means what I'm saying is right. The two front runners for the presidency have wildly different views on the war, how to help, who to help, and which allies they should team up with to try to bring an end to it all. This week, I speak to Susan Glasser of The New Yorker magazine to talk through a question both Ukrainians and Europeans are wrestling with. What if Joe Biden loses? I'm Jonathan Friedland, columnist at The Guardian, and this is Politics Weekly America. It's
it's been a real split screen news story. And of course, many people in Washington are very focused on it. In many ways, it has unexpectedly become the defining foreign policy challenge of the Biden administration, which anticipated... Before becoming a staff writer at The New Yorker, Susan Glasser was the Washington Post's co-bureau chief in Moscow. She's written several books on Russia, including Kremlin Rising, Vladimir Putin's Russia and the End of Revolution. You know, so for me, especially, of course, it resonates so much. So many uh, friends and colleagues risking their lives to cover the war and uh, and the Washington front in the war, by the way, as we'll talk about, is a very significant theater of operations in some ways for the Ukrainians. It really is. You've mentioned there how important Ukraine has been for the Biden administration, almost the preeminent, as you say, foreign policy issue of the presidency. Just to reverse the the equation, how important has Joe Biden, the role he has played, been to Volodymyr Zelensky and to Ukraine? Absolutely. I think that it's underappreciated, perhaps, because it's been complicated, right? It has not clearly been a dynamic in which the president and Zelensky sort of held hands and Biden offered him everything he wanted, right? And so there's been a sort of constant cycle, if you will, of kind of Ukrainians asking for this and that and the other and uh, questions about how quickly the Biden administration has or has not gone for it. That being said, if you step back one step more, I think it's quite remarkable in many ways what Biden has done in committing himself and his administration to the defense in, in Ukraine in fairly unequivocal terms. Ukraine has the same rights that belong to every sovereign nation. We will stand in solidarity with Ukraine. We will stand in solidarity against Russia's aggression, period. And I I have to say, I wonder, not only would that support not be forthcoming had Donald Trump won the election in 2020, but, uh, you know, even another Democrat, it's not clear to me that they would have had the, the inclination, the personal capital, and the willingness to to stake such a, a, a robust commitment on Ukraine's behalf at a time when obviously we are uh, enmeshed in our own domestic political crises. Yeah, and, and I suppose in a way it wouldn't have just been that uh, the contrast with what Trump would have done if he'd been in the White House, but maybe people wouldn't even have expected all this from Joe Biden himself, given that he ran in 2020 in part saying that he was going to end some of the entanglements uh, of the last few years for the United States. And I'm obviously thinking of Afghanistan. So how surprising has it been in terms of Biden's own record that he has enmeshed himself in this conflict? Well, it's interesting. I mean, it depends, as always, you know, what vantage point you take. Of course, Joe Biden, unlike uh, both of his immediate predecessors, has a decades-long record in foreign policy and foreign affairs and uh, considers himself steeped in the subject and is particularly a true transatlanticist, right? He he actually was so committed to uh, NATO and NATO enlargement that when the Republicans held the majority in the Senate during uh, one of the rounds of NATO enlargement, they actually let Joe Biden, then the minority ranking member on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, manage the floor debate on their behalf. Believe me, in this partisan age, <laughs> that doesn't happen much. I mean, that is extraordinary when you consider how polarized politics uh, are now. That would definitely not happen today. It would definitely, definitely not happen today. And to the broader point about Biden's 
kind of views of Russia, that is where it's less of a surprise. People may not realize this. I'm, I'm writing a longer piece at the moment on this subject for The New Yorker. And you know, one thing that struck me going back in Biden's record on, on Russia is that he really was something of an internal dissenter uh, to Obama's reset policy with Russia. It's simply unacceptable in the 21st century for countries to attempt to redraw borders by force in Europe or anywhere for that matter, or to intervene militarily because they don't like a decision their neighbor has made. Always very skeptical of Putin, as were many of the uh, advisors who worked with him who now occupy the most senior positions in his administration, Tony Blinken, now the Secretary of State, Jake Sullivan, now the National Security Advisor. Both of them agreed with Biden after, for example, Putin's illegal annexation of Crimea in 2014. Today I'm announcing a series of measures that will continue to increase the costs on Russia and on those responsible for what is happening in Ukraine. Biden strongly advocated, as did his aides, for uh, military assistance to Ukraine, including uh, the Javelin anti-tank missiles. Biden did not win that fight, uh, interestingly, in the Obama administration. Obama was very opposed to it, even though most of his top aides were for it. And I think that that was telling as well. But, and here's the big but, they really had this very strong view coming in in 2020 and spoke about this uh, repeatedly that the the sort of the long term challenge for the United States was going to be this emerging adversarial competition with China and Asia, and that was their view about how to reorient American foreign policy toward meeting that challenge. And uh, the words that they used for Russia were quote stable and predictable. I mean, and it goes to one of the intriguing subplots of the whole Biden administration, which is the extent to which they are correcting or altering the course that had been set uh, under President Obama, even when many of them were involved. There were those disagreements and they're now having their say, as it were. But I just want to talk about the alliance that's formed since the invasion of Ukraine by Russia in February 2022. And that business, often Biden's people do give him the credit as if he was the person who almost by hand forged this alliance of Europeans and others, bringing Germany, Britain and other countries together in an alliance. How much do you buy that? I mean, or would it have happened anyway? <laughs> that is a very interesting question. It's almost an impossible hypothetical, of course, because the European security is completely entangled and dependent on U.S. security guarantees. And, uh, you know, there is not really possible to imagine, no matter how many speeches President Macron gives, it's impossible at the moment to imagine a, a European security framework that does not include the U.S. as playing a leading role in in that and in NATO. And of course, that's that's been very much what we've seen here uh, in terms of the dynamic of support for Ukraine. And Biden came in determined to kind of rebuild alliances, uh, to focus on that. And we've seen him make decisions, by the way, during the course of the war in Ukraine that have reinforced that as a priority for him. For example, he, he and his administration were very clearly opposed to sending Abrams tanks to Ukraine, whether you agree with that decision or not, they definitely were opposed to it. But he chose to do so when that in the end became the uh, unnegotiable position 
of Germany and its chancellor to send their own leopard tanks. And I think that's a clear-cut example where Biden is choosing kind of alliance management and unity as as a pillar of what he's going to do for Ukraine. So we've talked about Biden and Democrats. We need to discuss the other side of the aisle, the Republicans. Now, people, anyone with memories of the Cold War would always associate the Republicans with being hawkish on foreign policy generally, but particularly on then-Soviet Russia. That was almost definitional in the era of, you know, Ronald Reagan. Those Republicans defined themselves by being unbending in their strength when it came to Moscow. That's not quite the picture now. You've obviously touched on it with talking about Donald Trump, but just give us a sense of where Trump stands on it and how typical he is of other Republicans, whether those other Republicans be the people he's running against for president or Republicans in Congress. Where are they all on Russia? You know, it is an important question because really what we're seeing is a sort of uh, Republican civil war over foreign policy broadly. And certainly Ukraine has become one of the major, if not the major flashpoints in that internal war amongst Republicans in terms of, I I think, the big shift in in core principles that, that Trump represents. Now, I I know saying Trump and core principles in the same sentence is a little bit (laughs) challenging in the sense that he has proved, uh, let's just say, ideologically flexible on most subjects. However, the constant strand that does run through is a form of neo-isolationism, America firstism. Every decision on trade, on taxes, on immigration, on foreign affairs will be made to benefit American workers and American families. And uh, along with that, lifelong tendency, uh, certainly for decades, of uh, admiration for uh, the kind of strongman nationalist tendency inside Russia. I got along with him really well. And that's a good thing, not a bad thing. He's got 1,700 nuclear missiles, and so do we. But look, that's a good thing. Getting along is okay. But I got along through strength. It has really adopted Kremlin talking points about Ukraine itself. Get it. But, you know, the people of Crimea, from what I've heard, would rather be with Russia than where they were. And you have to look at that also. What's amazing is not that Trump in and of himself holds these views, but that he has managed to persuade more and more of his Republican electorate to go along with them. And right now you see that most clearly, of course, in the House of Representatives, which is far more kind of Trumpist wing of the Republican Party than the U.S. Senate, where the bipartisan consensus and support for Ukraine remains quite strong, even among Republicans. And in the House, is it just a faction around, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene, those, the so-called Freedom Caucus, is it just those people who are pretty lukewarm in their support or much worse for Zelensky? Or is it a broader, almost consensus position among emerging numbers of Republicans in the House? Well, look, the bottom line is uh, the last time there was a vote on this, there were uh, three different votes uh, at the very beginning of the summer on amendments testing kind of support for Ukraine. And I think the high watermark was 70 Republicans voting against it. All Democrats, by the way, voting for uh, continued support for Ukraine. So that's very interesting. As you know, our House Speaker, Kevin McCarthy, is, is really a very weak Figure. I don't think I have to commit anything. Where's the accountability and the money we already spent? What is the plan for victory? The speaker reversing course after telling a Russian reporter in May that he will continue supporting Ukraine. 
And so he's kind of held hostage to this faction. And this faction has made Ukraine one of their defining issues. So it's not so much that they have a majority, it's that they are using the very powerful tools of their status to uh, control, basically, to be the puppeteers of the U.S. House. And I suppose what would be getting people in Kiev to be losing sleep at night is at the presidential level, because you've got Donald Trump making exactly the noises you've just said, but several of the other big figure candidates in that race for the Republican nomination have made and echoed similar noises about Ukraine, which makes you think even if it's not Trump, there are chances are strong that the next American president, if it's a Republican, would be ready, in effect, to abandon Ukraine. Well, it suggests where the direction of travel is headed in the Republican Party or where those uh, candidates think the momentum is on the part of their party's electorate. And so in that sense, it is very telling. I think it's extremely unlikely that uh, Vivek Ramaswamy or uh, even Ron DeSantis is going to become the next president of the United States or even get anywhere near close to being the Republican nominee for president. But it certainly caused many, many heads to snap when DeSantis, the governor of Florida, came out and said that it was essentially just a territorial dispute between Russia and Ukraine. DeSantis now says backing Ukraine is not, not a vital U.S. interest. Look at this. While the United States has many vital national interests, Becoming further entangled in a territorial dispute between Ukraine and Russia is not one of them. And in the first Republican debate, you had um, both him and Ramaswamy making very clear that they were not supportive of this current level of U.S. commitment to Ukraine. And so I think it's, it's about where the momentum is. And with Trump kind of steamrolling toward the Republican nomination right now in 2024, he, he talks about it a lot. Uh, in his various interviews and campaign appearances. And the more he talks about it, of course, the more he activates his base and his voters around it. So it's very likely that Ukraine becomes more of a partisan issue than it already is. The big picture is obviously that the Ukraine gets much more out of Joe Biden's White House than they ever would out of Donald Trump's. Uh, I mean, we, the NBC interview that uh, took place just the other day in which Donald Trump appeared sort of flattered by praise from Vladimir Putin, Putin's suggestion that Trump might be able to play a role in helping end the war, flattering him. It does conjure up the notion of a sort of an alliance that could happen if there were a second Trump presidency. You'd have Putin there, his recent guest uh, across the border, Kim Jong-un from North Korea, also would be there, Xi Jinping perhaps. Is there a fear in some foreign policy circles that there is an alternative alliance, as it were, waiting to be born if Joe Biden loses and Donald Trump wins, that will look very different to the kind of European-NATO alliance that has obtained for decades, but also that is embodied in a way by Joe Biden? <laughs> you know, I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm sort of entertaining your your notion here of a U.S. in, in, in alliance, not just uh, uh, with the president talking favorably, but uh, in alliance with North Korea and uh, Russia, and why not throw in Iran too? No, I mean, look, obviously that's absurd. That's not possible in, in its sort of full-throated 
fever dream imaginings even of Donald Trump. He knows that that's <laughs> not possible. It, it It's still unthinkable that we could have a president of the United States who would have open admiration for this collection of the world's tyrants and bad guys. And yet he now has a, a, a real, if not overwhelming, chance to become president again. That would shake our foreign policy and the world's expectations, I think, to the foundations. No question about it. Donald Trump actually came in in 2017 wanting to roll back sanctions that had been imposed on Russia in the wake of its annexation of Crimea. And he was stymied in his effort to do that by uh, essentially the bipartisan alliance in the Senate that is held up until now on Russia. That might not exist forever, but it's still inconceivable uh, you know, that we would radically transform in such a short amount of time our foreign policy. I think the question is whether we would really continue to step up in our leadership role in the institutions of European and world security that still exist. What sense do you get of how European allies are preparing or bracing themselves for the possibility, as you said, it is at least a real possibility, of a second Trump presidency? I'm thinking of the German foreign minister who recently said Europe would be better prepared this time after the shock of 2016. Do you pick up, I'm guessing that probably in Washington at those diplomatic receptions, you know, an ambassador or two sidles up to you and says, what do we have to do? <laughs> I do think there's a lot of trepidation and a lot of questions and a lot of concerns about where the US is headed in, in the 2024 election. And uh, an awareness that essentially, no matter how much you might try, it's essentially impossible to Trump-proof U.S. foreign policy or U.S. support for Ukraine in in the specific case. Is Europe better prepared? You're probably in a better position than I am to say that. I would note that there's been a, a, a marked increase in military spending by virtually all the NATO members. There's been a marked increase in awareness, both in alliance solidarity and also in awareness of the nature of the threat, that it's not just something that uh, you know partisan hawks in the U.S. are constantly complaining about with Europe, uh, but something very real that does threaten the stability of the continent. So I do think in that sense, there's a, you know, kind of growing sense that this is real and even existential for Europe in a way that hadn't been the case back in 2016 when Trump was first elected. However, some of the conversations, it seems to me in Europe, as well as here in Washington, by the way, <laughs> suggest we haven't learned very much about how, what to do about Donald Trump. You know, in the media, we're still having the same questions about should we give him a platform? Should we interview him? <laughs> it's uh, it's very circular, unfortunately. It is. And, and how to interview him. Kristen Welker of NBC tried a new method the other day with sort of uh, cutting back to the studio to do fact-checking of uh, Donald Trump's remarks. I mean, it is, as you say, still a dilemma. Uh, Susan, you know, because you've been with us before, that on the podcast we do like to ask our guests a what else question, something completely different. This one actually is a yes or no answer. Have you ever seen Beetlejuice the musical? <laughs> I can confidently say no to that one. <laughs> but you do know why I'm asking, and that is because of Lauren Bobert, Congresswoman from Colorado, Republican, big figure on the hard right of her party. She has now had to issue a second apology for a theatre date which has become infamous. It saw her getting kicked out of a performance of Beetlejuice the musical. The DCPA says she was vaping. Bobert's team denied that, said the haze was from fog machines in the show. 
That claim goes up in smoke when you see the video. The pregnant woman sitting behind Bobert told the Denver Post she asked her to stop vaping, and Bobert refused. Her one-woman show continued, taking flash photos, raising her hands and dancing, often the only one clapping or standing up in the crowd. Probably rather more shocking was that she and her date for the evening were getting very physical with each other. And this was noticed by people in the auditorium, and you can see it all in the video. Uh, she's apologised. She said that, yes, maybe she did become, and I love this, overtly animated. Whether it was the excitement of seeing a much-anticipated production or the natural anxiety of being in a new environment, I genuinely did not recall vaping that evening when I discussed the night's events with my campaign team while confirming my enthusiasm for the musical. Um, so she, she goes on to say, regardless of my belief, it's clear now that was not accurate. It was not my or my campaign's intention to mislead, but we do understand the nature of how this looks. So, But she's now trying to put a political gloss, even a kind of culture war gloss on the whole thing, saying that her date, who she'd been seeing for a few months and with whom she was publicly affectionate, she has now discovered that her date uh, was a Democrat the horror of it. And what's more, the owner of a local bar that had hosted some LGBTQ and drag events, the last thing being particularly significant because Lauren Boba had spoken out against drag, uh, she sort of tried to say that she didn't know any of this about her companion and she will be much more careful in future to check the political allegiances of those with whom she gets romantically involved. So, Susan, what does this all do, do you think, for Lauren Bobert and for her standing on the right? <laughs> you know, uh, hers is not the first uh, scandal involving a possibly oversexed in public congressperson. Uh, we have a long and distinguished history here, as I know you do <laughs> in Great Britain, <laughs> of uh, such matters. So it's not, you know, I, people are shocked, shocked to find misbehavior among members of Congress. But look, actually, Lauren Boebert is uh, perhaps the most endangered incumbent in the country in terms of her re-election race next year in 2024. She actually only held on to win her district in Colorado by something like 500 votes in the 2022 midterm elections. The same candidate is running against her this time, national Democrats didn't pay enough attention to the race, so they sort of screwed up. This time, they won't make that mistake, and uh, we'll see whether uh, you know that that helps him get the uh, remaining 500 votes he needs to to get her out of Congress. We will indeed watch that, and if that is what won it for Lauren Bobert's opponent, who would have had that on their predictions list for 2023 into 2024? Susan Glasser, uh, co-author of the. Divider, Trump in the White House 2017 to 2021, which is out in a new paperback edition this very week in the United States. Uh, thanks so much for coming on and talking with me for Politics Weekly America. That was terrific. Thank you so much. And that is all from me for this week. Now, we will check in with what's happening in Ukraine often. But for anyone who wants the most up-to-date news from there and from around Europe, this week The Guardian launched a new digital edition for Europe to serve its millions of readers 
across the continent. The point is to showcase the best of The Guardian's original journalism about Europe, along with the most relevant of our global news and views. At the same time, we're stepping up our editorial focus on the continent, adding specialist reporters in themes such as the environment, culture and sport, adding to our existing network of correspondence, deepening and widening our news and investigative work. We're also signing up columnists and writers to bring new perspectives and help clarify the impact of global events and the biggest shared challenges. I'm looking forward to reading what my new colleagues are reporting on, so do make sure to search for Guardian Europe to find out all the latest. But for now, it's goodbye. The producer is Daniel Stevens, the executive producer this week, Max Sanderson. I'm Jonathan Friedland. Thanks, as always, for listening. This is The Guardian. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com work. Shopify.com work.